You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Welcome back, Manufactured listeners. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Divya Gioti. Before we get started, and in case you missed it, a couple of quick updates. This season is going to be a little bit different to past seasons. A new release schedule, some new guest co-hosts, some new episode formats, and most importantly, Jessie's role will be changing. Fear not, she's not disappearing and her contribution as co-founder remains a critical part of the show's DNA. Be sure to check out our short season opener for the details and a thoughtful message from Jessie explaining some of the challenges she's faced creating this podcast and how she envisions her involvement going forward. Luckily for you and me, she's co-hosting this opening episode. In case you missed part one of this conversation, Divya started her career in India in an undergraduate program designed to prepare young professionals for managerial positions in garment factories. But instead of becoming a factory manager or an industrial engineer, Divya found herself working as a sustainability professional before ultimately landing in academia, where she now works as a lecturer at De Montfort University in Leicester in the UK. In part one, Divya told us more about her inspiring journey and why she began to question the industry's approach to social compliance and sustainability. She shared how she came to the realization that she didn't actually know how workers experienced the codes of conducts intended to make garment factories better places to work. To her surprise, the academic literature didn't seem to have an answer to this question either, and this ultimately became the subject of her PhD. Her thesis was selected for the Society of Business Ethics Best Dissertation Award in 2021. So why does the academic literature fail to consider something as basic as worker experiences of codes of conduct? And how did she endeavor to avoid this pitfall in her own work? In this episode, part two of the conversation, we get into her findings. How do codes of conduct create hidden work for workers on the factory floor? How does something intended to make garment factories a better place to work actually end up creating an extra time squeeze? What would be a better alternative? Is the problem with codes of conduct themselves or how they're implemented? And how can activists and labor rights advocates be effective allies? This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. I know this is an impossible, maybe an impossible question to ask, and in a way, a huge disservice to the nuance and complexity of your dissertation. But what did you find out? How do, how do the workers that you engaged with and encountered experienced codes of conduct yeah okay so um i think the the key uh you know analysis and the point is that really workers experiences are being generated you know at the intersection of uh, ongoing international production as well as 
you know these codes of conduct uh, processes which trigger what is known as buyer compliance in the factory right so at the intersection of these two what is ultimately happening you know just to summarize and come to come to the key point is that workers are experiencing a constant perpetual shortage of working time which you know they described and termed as bandish which is you know a, a hindi word so this was kind of resonated you know and, and the they they were experiences of you know feeling constrained feeling tied down feeling restricted they they you know different uh, instances but you know when when i analyze the data that's the key point and that's the mood point that you know workers are experiencing a perpetual shortage of working time so essentially and that's what i argue that these codes of conduct which are actually you know um, meant to and they are designed uh, and implemented with the intent of improving you know lives of workers in factories are actually generating hidden work for them uh, and and you know leading to uh, experiences uh, which are really mixed and and that's uh, you know what i want to highlight here so while this is one part you know of the argument the other is that despite you know the working time squeeze it's not that workers everyday lives are all dark and gloomy there are two sides to it uh, and and that really depends on the extent of control they feel on their physical financial psychological uh, you know or familial Um, or temporal aspects in life, you know, with with respect to time. So if they feel that working in the particular in a internationalized factory or a compliant factory is giving them, you know, a freedom in terms of their time, you know, there is a very positive experience which is generated. So what I'm trying to say is that it's the there is no one general experience, right, which can be conceptualized. However, uh, you know. in terms of the what's happening in the factory and what codes of conduct are doing is you know what i say that they are generating hidden work for workers there is a perpetual working time squeeze which workers are you know undergoing and experiencing so worker time squeeze i want to push you to a sort of concrete uh understanding of what that means i mean what kind of additional work does a code of conduct imply for workers why is it hidden what are some examples of how this time squeeze that you're talking about manifests itself okay so uh, you know uh, just to just to try and understand the processes so what happens in the factory is once you get the code of conduct right that reaches the desk of the hr manager and from there it is translated into what is known as buyer compliance in the factories right and in particularly in the specific factory uh, and from there you have a list of do's and don'ts right particular sets of behaviors which workers are expected to enact so that you are able to meet the criteria of buyer compliance right and this is what i analytically call you know the the phenomena of csr responsibilization where the workers themselves are now asked to be responsible for ensuring that the codes of conduct are implemented now what does it mean in their everyday life so i'll give you you know few tangible examples which will hopefully help you you know see what i'm trying to say so for example uh, you know you are a worker you're an operator right you're a sewing machine operator and because of compliance now there is a new rule which has to do with needle safety right uh, and the the rule is that you have to ensure that all pieces of the needle are collected before you can be issued a new needle if you fail to you know locate all the pieces then there is a particular process to be followed before you can be issued a new needle now 
the, the worker is sitting at one end of the you know factory floor shop floor the, the needle operator is sitting at one particular end the needle breaks they get up they go to to collect the magnet they come back use the magnet to find the pieces if they are successful then they take all the pieces back get a new issued a new needle issued and come back if they are not able to you know find the pieces then they have to collect uh, uh, groups of garments you know uh, from from their table and the table you know uh, ahead of them and then they have to you know get take that to the screening machine and that machine is going to detect if there are any pieces and then you know the supervisor will sign the uh, needle checking machine operator will sign and they'll come back and a new needle will be issued now the point is that you've lost time right and this is what you know uh, this time nobody accounts for it this is just one example uh, i did discuss this you know with the industrial engineers on the factory floor and they say that you know we do accommodate a standard allowance time and this of course varies from factory to factory but you know some factories accommodate 5 minutes some accommodate 10 minutes which you know includes all kinds of allowances right but what the amount of time which is being taken and this is just one activity now add to this another activity which was you cannot keep your water bottles with you when you are sitting on the you when you are working on the machine right now this means that all of a sudden every time you have to go and drink water you have to get up leave your desk go stand in a line you know drink the water and come back you know time lost right uh similarly uh, there was a rule about you know that every time and this is for checkers uh, you have to deposit your sharp tool right because you cannot move around with sharp tools in the factory uh, because you know uh, as a part of the buyer compliance requirements or the interpretation of the factory you have to deposit it or it has to be tied which basically me- means that every time you have to you know go to the washroom or go for something else you have to deposit the tool and then come back and then you know collect it again another example could be that you know you you think about the feeder right uh, a feeder is uh, an operator who actually makes sure that the line keeps running right the assembly line so the feeder is responsible to collect the pieces of you know the cut pieces of garments make sure the accessories are all on track that everyone has their bobbins you know to make sure that the line is running now what is happening when compliance is also you know it, it's it's kind of added to their jd right um uh, they are they are kind of also responsible now to make sure that you know things are clean that there are no blockages uh, dusters are available you know that that everything is happening the way it is supposed to be happening on the sewing floor which is added work for them so there is additional work and these are i mean of course you may say oh these are you know small jobs right but we are talking about assembly line we are talking about an industry which which based on time and motion studies has measured every action right we have a sam value for every operation when we think about the operation bulletin i want to ask you to define sam value standard allowed minutes uh, yeah it has to do with costing because when a factory is putting is deciding how much something should you know costs to make and therefore how much they should quote a brand for it it's all based on minutes and none of these additional actions in which you will lose time is actually being taken into account and and that's what you know it feels for them every day and that's like the key i would say recommendation or suggestion which in a way is very practical which has emerged from the study is that perhaps it's worth thinking about that you know the the gsd the general sewing database actually thinks about you know uh developing sam values which which are focused not purely on efficiency and productivity alone but you know a compliant factory or in fact i also make made this recommendation to the factory that maybe it's worth you know thinking about setting up a ideal line and then doing a time and motion study right and doing a comparison and then having a chat with your buyers 
that you know if i want to produce garments in a particular way this is the amount of time it's going to take and and that's where it kind of i would say hits at the real the the heart of the discussion in the industry right because the time is directly related to the cost i mean sam value number of targets you know your costing to put it in context i mean we had buyers who refused to pay us like half a cent more half a cent so these these margins you know are so small in terms of um monetary value that then when you and that's all based on like minutes of operation or even seconds of operation so it it sounds maybe like a small thing like oh you haven't accounted for a couple of minutes here or a couple of minutes there but it really sort of very directly ties to the financial relationship between between buyer and supplier and and hence i call it hidden work because it is unrecognized mm. and unpaid you know so you wanted me to kind of define yeah. um the uh, hidden work and 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 in every day what's happening is then that you know the cumulative effect of this and of course uh, uh, the cumulative effect is that the workers are somehow trying to juggle right and then they are juggling by by you know either holding back on going to the washroom or either you know holding back and saying okay i'll drink water at a later time or you know um, they used to talk to each other and then you know suddenly there is no talk no distraction kind of a rule because it's all about time right i mean the entire production is based around a time orientation or a clock time orientation compliance has a task orientation but the fact is the everyday activities of compliance on the floor take time and i think that is one insight which i want to kind of you know share with the with the industry uh, that you know this needs to be at least spoken about of course this is a in depth you know anecdotal study in that sense with one factory but it does allude or highlight a point that perhaps it's worth thinking about the very standards which we are following in the industry when we are doing our costings right because in a way there is this as you said you know there's downward pressure all around price where there is very limited tolerance which buyers have you know with respect to uh, the price and therefore the the targets right so in, in reality what's happening is that workers perpetually just feel that the targets are impossible to meet you talk to production managers and they say you know these are all based on industry calculations and you know we are it's not that our our target calculation is very different from any other place but the workers perpetually feel that the target is too high because they're all always in a catch up mode they're always catching up yeah another thing it just felt quite odd is um, i found that there is a hidden assumption this hidden assumption is uh, as if csr is a very good thing it's designed to protect workers benefits if a factory let's say factory already existed and this factory and if csr in is in a conflict with this factory's daily operation then what does that mean that means the factory's own uh, prior uh, daily operation is wrong is a bad mm-hmm. one so you should use csr process to replace your daily operation so hence old questions we just discussed is can be seen as an abnormal situation can be seen as a the factory is not good enough. That's, that's why you have those struggling and so on and so on. Instead of thinking, examining the hidden assumption that maybe CSR practice is not free. The intention is good, but anyway, it's not free because every factory has its own practice and it has extra work. 
But if we argue, if we argue, CSR practice is not free. If we argue that, and if we argue, CSR practice should be counted into quotation and cost. That will shake, I don't know, the core stone of the industry. Because then you yeah. will change your quotation uh, formula. Then you can then the, the price. Yeah. Then I don't know. It's a revolution. I, 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 I totally agree with you, Jesse. And it's I mean you've just put it beautifully because that is you know so in the previous research and uh, elsewhere it has been highlighted that there are costs of compliance, but they refer to only the infrastructural costs, right? So previous research has said okay, you know, to become a compliant factory, if you need to say you know add an extra door, make some physical changes, that, that will need infrastructural investment. And I think what I'm trying to argue in my work is that that's only one part. The other part is what you just said, that doing, you know, being a responsible factory. And, and this is not one individual's fault. This is this is historic. This is the way we, we started industrialization, right? With Taylorism and with time and motion study, with setting up assembly lines. There were particular assumptions from the very beginning when we, when the idea of, you know, uh, I would say, um, assembly line was conceptualized at the time nobody was talking about responsible production now that we are we need to understand as i said that you know it is not just about picking a garment from here to there and measuring the time it is taking you know there is a particular way to do it in the larger scheme of things if you want to be a responsible you know uh, manufacturer right and that's what as you as you rightly said is going to has the potential and ideally should uh, you know, and, and that is where the integration will happen because right now these are parallel processes and companies right from the start to the factory from at the brands ends also, you know, you have a sourcing team, you have a CSR department or, you know, now they call it responsible sourcing, but how much are the pricing and the sourcing, you know, or the sustainability or the procurement people talking to each other, we don't know. I mean, it, it, it remains to be seen because, you know, uh, research is mixed on that in terms of how it's actually panning out. But the, because they are, at, at the bio level, you know, they are not aligned. Even in the factory, what happens is that, as I said, that codes of conduct come in, they are seen as an add-on, right? So there is a production requirement that I have to meet with and that the production manager is responsible for. Okay, COC is compliance. Okay, the HR manager should make sure that, you know, we cleared the audit, right? It's an add-on process. But the and that's what I think that's the, that's the point that, we, you know, is emerging in this discussion, what has emerged in the research, that this the doing of it is taking time and that has an implication and and if we do not consider it it will be perhaps the most vulnerable or the weakest link in that network which is the worker who will be compensating for it right so it completely defeats the the purpose beyond the point of course this is not to say and i must mention this here that you know cocs are bad right or that not they haven't done anything you know or, or it's not useful they are a useful mechanism a useful tool but one needs to understand workers' experiences of it. And, and there is perhaps a need to, you know, scale up these studies, you know, may, maybe do more such studies to, to generate more empirical evidence, to be able to build a case to do what you just proposed, Jesse, which, yeah, I couldn't agree with more. <laughs> it's interesting because I think, like, when you talk to people in the fashion industry or in sustainability circles, you know, hearing, like, oh, there's a disconnect between you know, sustainability departments within brands and purchasing departments within brands. That's something you hear often. That's a common, that's a, that's something that that's commonly heard. And I don't think is disputed, but I think what's interesting about this conversation is it's like, okay, the fact that that hasn't been resolved 
is it's not like it just that tension is sort of passed down and then experienced on the production floor in a certain way and also experienced by the factory management in a certain way to the point where it's like um and I think you guys both alluded to this you know as a factory manager can't just it's very difficult like that let me put it this way the because sort of at a top level that there's a conflict that is fundamentally unresolved like all these other actors further along are sort of like left picking up the pieces and figuring out how to make something round around something with a round shape fit into a square hole um and then and i i think that's the piece for me that is then like you know that's kind of revelatory i had never thought i mean yes i knew purchasing and sustainability departments were not in sync and yes as a factory manager i had certain experiences that resonate with what you described divya but i hadn't really made that connection to okay there's this unresolved issue at sort of the top which now i'm sort of being asked to resolve and i don't know how to do it so i then then pass it on to my to my workers but i want to push you because kind of like if i read between the lines what you're saying is and you feel free to dispute this but what i am taking away is that the problem with codes of conduct is that they don't account for the time of compliance so is it fair to then interpret this as substantively there's nothing wrong with codes of compliance the problem has to do with how they're implemented or for with how that time is accounted for or do you think that actually the substance the contents of a code of codes of compliance are are also part of part of the issue here okay so see substantively the codes are coming from internationally agreed guidelines right uh, they all draw on the international labor organization uh, conventions they draw on the unhcr they draw on the ungps so they are drawing from a common pool of guidelines in in term, and, and the intent is to create better workplaces i think that so the the content in its absolute is not a problem you know because it it is it is a it, i would say it is an envisioning of a workplace or a or a kind of a setup which has collaboratively emerged right from, from based on what it draws on however the way it is enacted and practiced right and and what it translates to in the everyday is a problem and the other in my assessment is this one size fits all kind of an approach right because if you speak to suppliers they will often highlight different kinds of challenges with respect to you know their geography their their physical limitations and in the infrastructure so i think one is so that is a that is a part of implementation right how do you kind of you know make it work for the people who are supposed to be owning it and and that's where you know i feel that the 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 content of it also if it was you know more collaboratively developed rather than an ex brand saying okay here's my code of conduct and whoever supplies to me should follow it you know when you have an agreement with who is supposed to follow it you you maybe have a conversation with them around that code you know try and you know come come to the same page make any adjustments if at all necessary so that is that is one but i think substantively I, I do not personally see an issue. Nobody has really highlighted. I think the the issue that has been highlighted is this the the way it is rolled out, and also, uh, you know, if you just I would say act very sticky on the content, right? As as I'm saying, one size fits all approach. 
so a collaborative approach to implementation coupled with the way it's actually you know what's happening with it you know what's it really doing uh, you know within a factory that recognition is important because right now what what we are saying is okay here's a code of conduct and you know it will get implemented and this is where uh, i'm kind of you know preempting this but i'm i'm linking it to the to the due diligence laws which we are now discussing right the challenge with those i mean you know if, if you ask me okay what do i think about them i think this is an interesting development it's encouraging because it will make buyers uh, accountable but i am worried and i am worried because if we repeat the in, in the enforcement and the enactment of the laws we repeat the same approach then i'm really not sure and really not confident you know how far uh, we are going to go right because we we need to recognize that it's not that there are there's a lack of laws right i mean even in the countries where the suppliers are based there are laws i mean you take the case of lester right in uk it's a classic example where a lot of things are are really not happening the way they should happen so the problem in my assessment is not merely the lack of reg- regulation which will be remedied by you know uh, a regulation but i think it, it's it's also the it's it's the way you know uh, the the code is really being enacted and and rolled out i think you know due diligence is important but i think if you if you think about it and you know this is to be a bit provocative but due diligence in a way means that you know the that the i mean i almost in my head it's like the brands are coming with a stick you know to kind of make sure that the suppliers are in order and the suppliers are taking up a stick and making sure the workers you know are doing the right things so that they are protected right so that the workplaces are better now this i mean visually in my head when i think this kind of image it just seems a bit absurd but that's that is what i think right now the idea is right i mean i think i think i think that this is a great development codes of conduct are a great tool but the but we need to think about i would say we need to keep in mind the people for whom we are creating these laws i think very simply put i think that's where to me it boils down i'm thinking about the clean clothes campaign mm-hmm. of the world the sort of activist entities who are pushing for various things because you know because i think there's this belief that it will ultimately benefit the most vulnerable in the supply chain these are not industry actors they're not a brand they're not a supplier they're not a you know on the production floor so these like entities who are you know outside the sort of supply chain but sort of are trying to advocate for a better industry like if what we're ta- i mean what's what's the pl- what's the what's the what's their place like how can they be an ally you know if the standards are okay but it's the the critical question is implementation how does an you know outside advocate sort of participate in how these things are implemented i think that's an that's a very interesting uh, question and i think i mean these organizations are much needed and that's because workers do not really have their voice right particularly in 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 forums where these approaches are being discussed and debated right but i i would just invite to be an ally my invitation with we do not just act on behalf of the workers you know without consulting them do not decide for them do not as you know jesse also pointed out just categorize them in this one big box of you know workers right uh, we we need to kind of develop the solutions with them and that is the approach which needs to be advocated for rather than giving 
the, you know, solutions which we believe we have crafted, we develop one with them. I mean, if you think about COC, it can be a classic example, right? The code of conduct. I really wonder if any worker was consulted when these solutions for governing working conditions were being developed, right? I mean, we really have to examine the history. But but if we were to consult workers, we would know that a lot of the naming and shaming, you know, techniques and strategies which are which are adopted, they often impact livelihoods with, you know, in an adverse manner, right? And that is not a real solution. I, I completely am for calling out, you know, any form of exploitation. But I think it's equally important to be, to be, you know, cognizant that we need to find a way forward, you know, together with the, with the, with the workers. So be mindful of, you know, I would say the intended and the unintended consequences. And, and, and the, the only possible way I see, uh, this to be done is to working with the workers rather than working for the workers. So we, we, instead of thinking that, okay, you know, they are victims who need saving or, you know, uh, we, we end up doing things in their name, but without them, we should actually perhaps act as facilitators, as means to enable them to, you know, come together and design, design solutions, perhaps, uh, you know, instead of just homogenizing and creating a one size, uh, you know, I would say, uh, uh, one size fits all fits all approach i i understand the value of you know having certain representatives to come up with like a global universal solution but i i just feel that there is a need for i would say more locally you know more local solutions right which 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 perhaps are 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 you know uh, locally developed locally evolved and locally implemented by the people who are supposed to be benefiting from them or implementing them so that would be my invitation. Again, I think the skeptic in me is like a lot of labor rights activists think that they're doing what you're describing, right? Um, or perceive themselves to be doing what you have just sort of what your call to action has been. Yes, conceptually, theoretically, yes, you have this approach, right? But how is it playing out in the geographies that you wanted to play out really you know what is the difference that's being made into the lives of workers and and, and that's where i often feel that the, the conversation happens actually at the managerial level not so much with the workers you know even within within, within you know and, and this is really provocative but i'm just gonna <laughs> say this you know i mean be it the unions be it the ngos right who is it that we are talking to and making all the decisions even in the name of workers, are we really speaking to the workers and understanding their everyday struggles? You know, do they really want what we are being told that they want? I mean, and, and that's what, you know, when, when I spoke to the workers, they did not mention, some of them said, yes, union, but most of them, all they said was, we would just like to be spoken with some degree of respect. You know, otherwise we understand, we understand the struggles, but this is the least that, you know, someone could do to, to begin with, you know, and, and to, to kind of give us a say, hear us, give us a voice. And I think that's, if you think about us and what we do in our workplaces, I think that's the, that's the least amount, right? That we can, we can get started with. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. 
Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. 